0: Well, it's my privilege this morning to be able to read scripture, and uh, we're starting a series in 1 John, and so we're still in chapter 1 and the first four verses, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to, uh, to take them and follow along with me. They'll also be uh, here on the screen. We like to read from uh, many different tra- uh, translations or versions, and uh, sometimes paraphrases as well, and so this is from the message. From the very first day... We were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own eyes, saw it, sorry, heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, and verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was, incredibly, this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. Walk in the light. The Word of the Lord. Last uh, last Sunday, Pastor
1: Norb uh, introduced us to the uh, little letter of First John, uh, only five chapters long, and he called the writer Grandpa John. Loved that, because of his senior status uh, of, of of being an apostle at that time, and he may well have been a senior. We expect he was when he took pen to hand to compose this powerful letter. Maybe 80 years old when he's writing this. Uh, but he is a grand follower of Christ, and his years of wisdom puts him in a great spot to write this profound word of encouragement and direction. At this point in his ministry, John is a pastor to probably several churches in what is now called Turkey. This is the picture of uh, Asia Minor. The next picture is a picture of uh, modern-day uh, Turkey, and uh, and this is, where these, this is where the churches were located. Uh, we might call John a regional minister or a superintendent of churches or an advisor. Certainly a well-respected servant of God who was also an apostle. We don't want to forget that, that he was also an apostle. One of the inner three close to the heart of Jesus. Yet, as Pastor Norb reminded us last week, the one who unsubtly declared that he was the one that Jesus loved. And he comes with uh, great credentials. He's going to lead us out into deep waters. After all, he was a fisherman, wasn't he? Along with his brother James. Some of the best fish are out in the deep waters. And the challenge with deep waters is simply the challenge of reeling those deep water fish in. They're big. And First John moves us out from shore a long ways. The words, uh, if you're following, and I hope you have your Bible with you this morning or your your iPhone or something, you can look up 1 John. The words look simple enough, and although the letter is easy to read, it goes deep. And before long, you were saying, how does this simple fisherman have such great insight? How tough can it be to read the words of a fisherman? Pretty tough. Below the surface is some very challenging truth that we will seek to explore. Pastor Norb motored us out into the middle of the lake last week to catch the context, the, the big picture. So this morning, from the middle of the lake, we pull out the fishing lines and we throw them overboard to see what we can catch. And John wants us to catch a life, a unique life. I know we use the term, get a life, and we sometimes it comes across with a bit of an edge. Get a life. But John really wants us to get a life. He wants us to get the life of God. And, and the good thing is that the first four verses of 1 John 1 gives us some handles on how to do that. Get a life. The first way is to recognize that, uh, the word of life. To acknowledge the word of life. And here's what the scripture says. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard And seen, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. There are three major accounts of beginning in the scripture. I think you know them. The first one is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the story of the beginning of creation. It's the story of how everything around us had its start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1. Before there was time, before there was stars in the sky, before there was the sun and the moon and the earth, before there were trees and grass and people, God created. God created the heavens and the earth. It was the beginning of the world as we know it. It was the beginning of the earth, of the universe as we know it. It is a place of beginning. All of what we see around us had a beginning. The date is debatable, but there is a beginning. We have another beginning in the Gospel of John, the prologue, the first few verses of the Gospel of John. Same writer as 1 John, John the Apostle, the fisherman. Look how it starts. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. John chapter 1 the gospel calls for the very best in your thinking about the scope of existence. I mean, how do you how do you describe something that existed before creation? Uh, allow your mind to take you back, back, back into the realm that was before the creation of the world. How do you even think about that? We call it infinity past. And John says, in the beginning, which is translated, which really never had a beginning, because God doesn't have a beginning, eternally existed the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was always with God, Even before we had a beginning here on this earth, he always existed. The word always existed. I mean, hard to wrap our heads around something like that because we only can really think of things that are limited to time and space. But the word always existed. Who is the word? You have to just scoot down to verse 14 of of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and you see the answer. So the Word became human flesh and made His home among us. This is the incarnation. This is God becoming man. This is the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It's a picture of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And this Word is the Creator. This is God Himself. Imagine Jesus being born and actually living among what He created. Oh, see the beautiful lake? The beautiful Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been on the beautiful Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful lake. And Jesus, when He walked in this earth, would say, I made that. I made those rolling hills in Galilee. I made that river that flows from the, from the north to the south down to the Dead Sea. You know, I, I, I was overwhelmed this week. Sometimes uh, you grasp truth in your mind And you say, oh, yeah, I get that. But sometimes it reaches beyond your mind and gets into your heart. And that happened this week. And and, and it just grabbed my heart. And I said, I am so overwhelmed. I am so blessed. My heart gets it, God. And then it seems like it goes back to head again. God loved us so much that He came to us. The very one who, who created the world and created us, stooped to come among us and took on himself a human body and actually walked on this planet. And every time we look at Jesus and we see his kindness and grace and, and his, his goodness, we know precisely who God is. We know the heart of the Father because this is who the Father is when you look at Jesus and Jesus said in the Gospel of John, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John fourteen nine. The third beginning is in the passage we're looking at this, this morning. First John, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. And the verse brings us right back to the incarnation again. This is the baby that was born to Mary. There was a time when he took his first breath on this earth, but there never was a time that he didn't exist. This life, this God, this, this God was made visible in Jesus Christ. And this is the one who calmed the angry sea. And this is the one who said to Lazarus, come forth. And this is the one who healed the ten lepers that we talked about the other day. And John, the writer, is taking very special care to point out who the word of life really is. Now, why is he doing that? That's where the deeper water is. There's a context for his words. John is writing to a community of believers where there is considerable disunity. People in this faith community are not on the same page. There are some weird notions floating around as to who Jesus Christ really is. The incarnation is under siege. The problem people in the congregation were probably those who had been called Gnostics. They had a problem with the historical Jesus. If they affirmed the divinity of Jesus at all, that he was God, they certainly had a problem with his humanity. They had a belief that material things were to be shunned and only the spiritual was important. So for Jesus... To have a body was not acceptable. This was material. This was matter. And God would never take on himself something unspiritual like a physical body. Somehow, something spiritual and something physical simply don't mix, was their thinking. So they basically said that the physical was evil. Therefore, they did not acknowledge Jesus as the God-man, 100% God and 100% human. And John is seeing all of this happening in the congregation. He's seeing some people exit out the back door. He's seeing people at odds with one another because they don't believe who Jesus is. They have some off-base ideas as to who Christ is. And he sees contention in the congregation and fellowship is pretty hard to come by. The body is, is, you talked to Lynn about sharp elbows this morning, sharp elbows in the congregation, one commentator asked the question: Was John a successful pastor? Well, if you define success in terms of growth, he probably was not successful in the same way that Paul and Barnabas and Silas were successful. The churches where they pastored often exploded with growth. Perhaps John not so much. But we're called. Are we called to be successful pastors? I don't think so. It is wonderful if the church grows, but there are many pastors who do not see great growth in their congregations, but John could be called a faithful pastor. He had a tough job. He had to deal with some very severe division within the ranks, and his calling was to correct the heresy that was prevalent in the young church. He was a faithful pastor. So if you're wondering why he is taking great pains to describe the incarnation, it is precisely because this great truth, this great core truth of the gospel is under attack. We're dealing with the very core of the Christian faith, the identity of Christ. Now, aren't you glad that uh, churches are doing a better job these days of uh, working together for the most part? Now, there are differences in churches, but I just, I just love the fact that churches are partnering together more than when we started ministry 40 years ago. The churches today, they're working together a lot more effectively. Uh, and, and, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, because there, there aren't the issues that separate us. Now, there is nothing more central and more core than who Jesus Christ is. That, that is, now we're at the very heart of the Christian faith. And it is hard to have real heart connection and fellowship with those who do not hold to the fact that Jesus is come in the flesh. If He's simply a good man, if He's simply a prophet, if He's simply a created being, but not God, then we are poles apart and the fellowship is not real and intimate. Well, by the time Grandpa John writes this letter... It may well be, have, have been 50 years, probably 50, 60 years since uh, Jesus walked this earth. And the first generation of believers, those who actually encountered Jesus, have just about died off. And John was probably one of the very last living apostles. So he's writing to what might be called the second generation or the third generation Christians. By second generation, I mean people who never personally encountered Jesus of Nazareth, but heard about him from someone who did. Third generation believers were those who heard about Jesus from someone who heard about Jesus from someone who actually met Jesus, and you get the idea. After three generations, things can get a little tattered on the edges. Questions come up. Doubts creep in. Did it really happen? Is it really true? Can I stop here just a minute? I'm I'm curious. How many of you are first-generation Christians? In other words, your parents or grandparents were not Christ followers. You are the first in in your generation. Awesome. Awesome that you have met Christ in your generation And now you're moving that faith on to others. How many of you are second generation Christians? That is, your parents were committed believers and you came to faith as a child or young adult. Amen. look at us. How many are third generation believers? Both your parents and your grandparents were Christ followers. How many? Quite a number, quite a number here. You know, the good thing about a second or third generation believer is that you have a rich spiritual heritage. You grew up knowing Christ and the Bible and the Christian life. The downside of being a second or third generation believer is that you may not have had the kind of, I don't know what word to use here, dramatic conversion experience that a first generation believer has. I mean, not necessarily, of course, but the faith, you know what I mean, has always been there for you. It may not have seemed so precious because you had it around you. It wasn't this awesome discovery since you were, because since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, you have known the way. I mean, I'm at least a third-generation follower in my faith. Uh, maybe more. I I don't know the heritage in the old country. My grandfather moved from England when he was just a young adult. He was 20 years old, and he took up farming. He was a committed farmer, but but most of all, he was a servant of God. And uh, my dad, the next generation, took a little while to embrace the faith. He had some years there where he struggled. But in midlife, he made it a priority... And at the end of his life, he put it into overdrive. It's like, I've got to make up for all these years. And because of my family, I was introduced to the Christian faith. But I, too, had to make it my own. And now we have children who are making it their own. And little children who are just beginning to... Uh, are their children who are just beginning to embrace it. Little two-year-old Audrey, the, the gal, little gal in the white, is, is our youngest. Uh, lives in Michigan. We saw her last week and uh, we we were talking and she points to her heart and she says, I have Jesus in my heart. Now, where did she learn that from? She got that from her mom and her dad. Jesus lives in her heart. And now she's repeating it. She's so young. She's only two, but she's hearing it as a fifth generation little one. And John is writing to second and third generation followers because he knows that people have been attempting to sabotage the message of who Jesus really is. Better take that slide off. It's it's, it's a little hard to watch. Some were saying Jesus wasn't really human. He just appeared to be human. He appeared to have a body. He appeared to die, but he really didn't. Oh, no wonder John says we saw Him with our own eyes and touched Him with our own hands. He is the Word of Life. Friends, the Christ we know and love is the Word of Life. He's the precious Son of God. He always existed. But He came to us and He lived among us and He died for us. And that's the Word of Life. And what He accomplished by living us living for us and dying for us is more significant than anything else in all of history. So the first thing is to recognize the word of life. The word of life. Secondly, get a life by experiencing His life. Now listen to what John says here. The one who is life itself was revealed to us. And we have seen Him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that He is the one who has eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Back in verse 1, there is this affirmation, whom we have seen and heard. We saw with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. John says, let me tell you about Jesus. You know, you say all these weird things about Jesus, but you don't know. But I was there. I knew this man. I heard him speak. I was there when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. I heard him declare all of these parables. I heard firsthand all that he taught. I saw what he did. I watched him for several years. I saw the multiplication of loaves and fish that one afternoon when the rest of us wanted to send the people home. And Jesus said, no, have them be seated. And I watched Jesus pray, and I saw the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. And I watched him until all of the people were fed and there was enough for everyone. I saw the evil spirit come out of the man that was hurting the the demon-possessed man in in the country of the Gadarenes. I saw the woman come up behind Jesus and touch his garment, and I saw that she was healed. John said he touched with his hands. And how many times I would expect that John and the, and the disciples bear hugged with Jesus. And they, they enjoyed one another's company. And John, remember, was the one who leaned on Jesus' chest. You see what Jesus is saying? We proclaim to you that we have actually experienced Jesus. This isn't just something we heard about. No, we were there. We know this firsthand and we want you to know so that you can experience him too. We want you to know that true Jesus because he will transform your life. I was in Michigan, uh, both Mark and I, a week before last and was asked to be a resource to the Genesis Church, which is the church plant where, where Angela and Jeremy and uh, family uh, attend. And we interviewed about 50 people as to they're ready to get rolling to start a new church as well, to build a new building. So we were assessing that church. And it was such a joy to meet these people. Each interview was nearly an hour with an individual or a couple. And one lady just stands out, a high school teacher, a social studies teacher, had recently come to Christ. She started attending the church. She was baptized just last June. And we weren't very far into the interview, and she said to me, Did you ever have buyer's remorse? I had no idea where she was coming from. I said, I don't think so. She explained that after her baptism, it was very disillusioning for her. She thought her spiritual life would just soar. But instead, it it dragged. She said, I think I have buyer's remorse. I'm not sure I should have done that. And I knew instantly that the enemy was throwing a pack of lies at her. Oh, I said, I, you know, I usually tell people who are being baptized to be aware for the next couple of weeks, for the next month or so, to be aware because you might head into the desert just like Jesus did after His baptism. You may be tempted. You may be discouraged. That is the attack of the enemy. He would love to have you think, I made a mistake. And her eyes opened wide and she, she said, Wow. I never thought of it that way I said you know the enemy will hand you whatever tool he thinks will work with you if it's the tool of discouragement he'll hand you that one if it's the tool of disillusionment he'll hand you that one he knows you so well not to give him all the credit in the world but he knows he's 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 cunning and and he's sharp and he, he knows your weakness and And, you know, I could see the tears forming in her eyes. And as she realized that Satan was robbing her of her victory and the reality of her experience with Jesus Christ. She thought she made a mistake. But You know, God right there touched her life. And I heard later how the Spirit of God met her and turned her back to walking with the one who was real and powerful and awesome. Whether it's a siege on the incarnation, as it was true in John's day Or a personal attack for many of us in our generation. An attack to say, this Christian faith is not cracked up to be what they say it is. It's not meaningful. I'm not discovering purpose and significance and joy. It's just a bunch of talk. I'm feeling disillusioned. Like John, I want to say to you today, He's the one who brings the transformation. There is none like Him. The enemy will try to put the blinders on. The enemy will try to say, oh, have you tried this in addition? I mean, this really works. You should add this. The enemy will try to obscure the reality of really experiencing Jesus. But the bottom line is there is no one who can save and satisfy and provide confidence and joy and peace like our Savior because He is the Word of Life. He is the Son of God. 100% human and yes, 100% God. The God-man. The Savior of the world. Can I ask you this morning, friends? Are you experiencing Christ? We haven't had the privilege of seeing and hearing and touching Jesus in the flesh. But the point of John's letter is that this life This experience of Christ is available to everyone every day. Get a life by experiencing His life. Don't settle for name only. Yes, I'm a third generation, and I'll just coast in on that. Oh, no, it must be personal. Make it your own. Discover the reality of the great things that God has for you. Don't go through this life and miss the experience of living in relationship with Jesus. He has something for you day by day, and He longs to be in fellowship with you. And then finally, briefly, get a life by enjoying His life. Get a life by enjoying His life. There's such a good word here about fellowship. You know that word fellowship is used in, in, in such strange ways. We used to say, come on over for a church-wide potluck fellowship. You, did you use that all the time? Potluck fellowship. Well, don't think so. I mean, for one thing, it doesn't even fit our context anymore. This is brunch. This is not potluck. We are so indebted to people who make the the brunch for us. But you can be at all the potlucks that you want to be at, and you won't necessarily have fellowship. It's optional whether we have fellowship. It depends on what really happens. If you ask the right questions and you have real communion, then you'll have fellowship. But what is fellowship? The Greek word you may have heard before is koinonia. It means to share or have something in common. It's such a rich word, and it means so much more than just a social time. It means intimacy. I've never talked to a a couple who got married and left for a honeymoon, and after two weeks came back home, and if I was to say to them, how was your time away? Oh, we had good fellowship. I don't think so. I've never heard anyone put it that way. Oh, yeah, we just sat down. We planned the colors for the kitchen. We uh, were, we're going to paint them when we get back. I don't think so. Not on your honeymoon. Most likely, they wouldn't tell me all the excitement of their honeymoon, and I wouldn't push them for details. But I expect it was a very intimate, personal, thrilling time of husband and wife getting to know one another. It was personal, it was real. And that's the meaning of koinonia, a time of getting to know one another in God's love, a real deep communion between people, a real connection of the heart through Jesus. Listen to these words. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. And you see, the, the fellowship was broken. The koinonia was broken. The, 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 the fellowship was broken in that church, uh, churches to which John is writing. And John says, we want to have fellowship. Ah, uh, This is not fellowship. We are, we are torn at the very heart of the issue. And the koinonia, he says, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you have fellowship with the Father? Do you have fellowship with the Son? This is the very essence of why we are on the planet. To have fellowship. A heart communion. Not a passing nod to Jesus. Have a good day and I'll try to have a good day too. It reminds me of what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. That's a wonderful verse. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Isn't that awesome? I will come in and we will, we will eat together as friends. That's a metaphor for connection, intimacy. May I ask you today, have you opened your heart's door to Jesus Christ? Have you heard the knock at your heart's door? And have you said, come in, Lord. You're welcome in my life. You're welcome every day. Come and live and eat and dine in my life. Let's have koinonia. There is fellowship, and with the fellowship comes great joy. We will share the joy together as followers of Christ. And I will share your joy, and the church will share your joy fully. Most of us, or many of us, are afraid to enmesh ourselves in the lives of other people because we can't stand the idea of tying our hearts to other people. If they're unhappy, then that means we're unhappy. And so we withdraw. And we don't get involved in the lives of people. But the incarnation, if you can see this, means that Jesus Christ, God Himself, got enmeshed in our brokenness. He came to us. He went to a cross. He stretched out his hands and feet and was nailed to a cross because he was willing to do what needed to be done so we could have fellowship with the Father. Don't you love him for all that he's done for us? Does it move from your head to your heart? Don't you long for deep koinonia with his followers? Our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. You say, How can I know this Christ? Open your heart. Open your mind. Say, Yes, Lord, take control of my life. I give my life to You. Please live. In me, if you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, or you need to say yes, yes again, yes, but oh, I've, I've drifted, would you say it this morning? Would you bow with me? Would you close your eyes and would you just talk to the Lord and perhaps just need to say, Lord, I, I hear you speaking. I acknowledge, I hear your voice this morning. I hear you knocking at my heart's door. And will you say to Him, I open the door of my life to you? Please come in. Forgive my sin. I acknowledge my sin. And I ask for Your forgiveness. Oh, please restart me, Lord. I'm Yours, Lord. I start fresh again today with You living in my heart. Thank You, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And everyone said, Amen.